0: Welcome to the Wealth with Purpose podcast, where people come to learn what the Bible says about money, wealth, and business. Be inspired by some of the greatest Christian thinkers and commentators from around the planet. Enjoy this episode with your host, Alex Cook.
1: A conversation that could change everything, and for those who are not so used to a finance conversation... This time of year, just 10 days out from the end of financial year, you might want to hang on to some of the wisdom as you'll hear today as we talk about end of financial year and those sorts of things we might think about as families, as business people, as ones who are interested in what happens money-wise. So the end of financial year, just 10 days away, an opportunity today to access some wisdom from finance commentator Alex Cook. So 30th of June, fast approaching tax time, uh, investment strategies, issues around superannuation or in giving. Well, you might have a question or scenario to offer today, and it might be a blessing to lots more people than just you. So uh, I'll just prepare you. In fact, we could open our talkback lines a little earlier. You might like to join into our conversation on one 800 So things like when government changes to regulations and policies affect your finances? Well, you might be interested in some insights around those things. Are there any changes that are affecting you right now? Uh, Are there things that you might like to think of as uh, even projections of what might be coming Uh, as you plan a strategy for the upcoming financial year. Well, Alex Cook is back with us, finance commentator and founder of Wealth With Purpose. Alex is a former stockbroker. He's been a successful financial planner, and he is the founder of Wealth With Purpose. His ministry is to help equip Christians to honour God with their finances by teaching sound financial skills. Our talk back line open on 1800 316 316 if you have a question or a scenario for Alex today. Alex Cook, a special welcome back to 2020.
2: Thanks, Neil. Great to be back again in the mad rush that is 30 June.
1: <laughs> it is a busy time for you because while you do these, uh, these finance commentary updates with us uh, fairly regularly, Um, you also have clients that you deal with uh, not only in Australia but around the world. So, uh, you know, is it the same for others around the world? Are they working the same financial year as we do? Uh,
2: Most work on a calendar year, but certainly Australia is still good old 30 June and that uh, keeps me on my toes at this time of year and keeps me uh, me, uh, away.
1: Okay, so and it means that uh, you can actually you can you can divide busyness uh, for thirtieth of June with uh, busyness at the end of December. Hey, let Absolutely. me start. Let me start with a listener question from Ellen from Gulwa in South Australia. Uh, she says, uh, "Just have a few questions for regarding investing some of my savings. I'm a recent widow and aged pensioner, also." A Vision family member for almost 20 years. Uh, Good on you, Ellen. I currently have some savings through my bank which are paying 3.85% monthly interest. To get this, I need to deposit $50 plus per month. Uh, Looking at their term deposit rates, which are 4.5% without me needing to add $50, seems a better choice for some of my savings. Some of my family members have bought Bitcoin and gold bars and are very happy with the returns. I would really appreciate your thoughts on the above. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts for Ellen as we get things underway?
2: Yeah, look, thank you, Ellen, for sending through your question. Uh, And it's a really important one uh, because obviously a lot of people are thinking at this time, how do I maximise my returns but also manage my risk? And so a couple of things that I want you to have a think about as you're mulling over what you should do. And the first thing we always start with is what is your actual goal? What is it the purpose of this money? Uh, Is this for generating income? I, you need an income off the term deposits that that you have in mind, or is it because you're gonna use this money in the short to medium term for capital expenditure? Maybe, you know, you need to buy a new car, or you, you need uh, money for holidays, things like that. So, what is the actual purpose of the goal? Uh, and then associated with that then becomes the time frame. So, the way we always uh, manage uh, client money is based on when do they need that money back. And the longer the time frame, the more risk you can take. So, if it's short term, as in the next two to three years, you want to keep that money ultra conservative. If it's longer time frame, then obviously you need to you can afford to take a little bit more risk. So, that's, so really the starting point is what's my goal? What am I actually trying to use the money for? And therefore how much risk should I take? And the second part to that risk discussion is what I call your risk profile. This is what financial planners talk to people about. And really the best way I can explain this is I call it the sleep at night test. How are you sleep at night knowing where your money is invested? So that's really important to keep in mind when you're investing money. You want to make sure you have peace about where it is and be comfortable that the money is secure and in things that you understand, which then leads to, of course, the big discussion around Bitcoin and gold. So Bitcoin's obviously uh, taken a huge interest in people over the last few years. But my message here is one of extreme caution. Uh, Really, you've got to be really careful about allocating money to something like Bitcoin, uh, predominantly because it's extraordinarily volatile. So to give you an idea, last year it lost 78% of its value. So you'd be very cautious about putting any money in there that you weren't happy to part with uh, because, you know, we just don't know the direction of Bitcoin. Uh, There's lots of pros and cons and arguments for and against it. Um, So that's the first thing. Be very careful if you're going to dabble in things like that. Gold. Now gold's a more interesting one because it's been around for the test of time. Uh, And I'll be honest, we do allocate small amounts of uh, client portfolios into gold. It does have some downsides because it won't pay you an income. Unlike a term deposit, uh, where you've got income at at the moment, you get almost 5% in a term deposit. With gold, it doesn't give you any income, but it does give you that sort of security of sound money that's been around for 5,000 years. And uh, so we always say to Bill, it does have a, its place in a portfolio, but not necessarily a large portion because it doesn't pay you anything. And it is also volatile, goes up and down in value. So there's a couple of considerations, but obviously probably the big one that everyone's thinking about at the moment is inflation. You know, we talk about the cost of living, but ultimately when you're investing money, the key to success is investing in things that are going to grow at rates that are equal to or greater than inflation over the long term. So that's the key. Invest in things are going to beat inflation, which is difficult at this current point in time, uh, but certainly that's the key uh, when you're thinking about investing.
1: And uh, thank you so much uh, to Ellen in Goulwa uh, for posing that question. And uh, we're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. 316 316 I guess it could be one of those days. Uh, Sometimes we mention a disclaimer around the thought that insights are general in nature and you should seek advice from your own financial advisor but uh, you're welcome to call uh, with a scenario and run those things by our special guest Alex Cook. Let's take a call from Melanie in Victoria. Hi Melanie, welcome along.
0: Thank you. Um, just have a question based around HECS. Um, I've heard that, um, I'm not sure the, the right words but like the interest of hex is increasing quite substantially. Um, our family still has one hex debt um we own our own property and things um so i'm just wondering yeah what the advice might be about whether we should actually pay off the remaining sum um on the hex a uh,
1: good question melanie because uh, it is. there's some uh, there's some indexation that's happening on hex debts thoughts here alex
2: yeah look thank you melanie it's a great question and it's one that's popped up a lot in the last six months normally it's not talked about that much but because of what's happening that's changed uh so normally hex is uh, it's a very cheap debt, right? In the sense that it really only goes up each year by inflation. Now, inflation's been very benign and very low for a very long period of time, but all of a sudden, as no surprise, inflation's jumped dramatically in the last uh, twelve months, and as a result, HEX is going up by I think at least seven percent this year. And so people are asking this question, should I pay it off? Um, the first way to address this is, I think if I listen to you correctly, you don't have a mortgage, in which case, if you've got no other debt, then you might want to start shipping away at HEX so that it doesn't grow. Cause you don't want it to get, keep growing and growing and growing. You want to actually pay it down as a general principle. Uh, in saying that for, for anyone else with this same sort of question, cause it is a common one now, generally what I say to people is you list your debts in order of their size, but also in order of the interest rate. So if hex, if your hex debt costs you 7%, but your mortgage is costing you eight percent, then you're better off paying off your mortgage. Likewise your credit card's more like 18%. So typically you pay off the high interest rate ones first um, because that's the one that's costing you the most and you you know you're throwing money at interest. So the, the key one is always the highest interest rate first. Now there may be other considerations in that but generally speaking, I would say to people, you really do want to chip away at your hex debt and not let it continue to grow. Particularly now that it is going to go up by seven percent, rather than the historic sort of between one and three percent. So it's a it's a great question, Melanie.
1: And Melanie, anything further to add? Um,
0: I'm just wondering, does it also depend on your income level? Like we, we homeschool, we've only got one um, income, and so I think in the past I've been told that yes. You know if you're below a certain income then it's not necessarily um yeah you probably can finish that off i'm not really great at explaining yeah no that. no you, no
2: you're right no no melanie you're right so basically it's a threshold when you have to start paying it back so if you're below that threshold and then it goes up in percentages so the more you earn the greater the percentage that you have to pay back um so if your income say particularly the person who has the hex debt is not working then you're not actually having to repay any of it so you're not obliged to pay it. Uh, However, as I say, what you don't want is it to keep growing 10 years down, large debt, old can afford it. You just want to keep chipping away and paying it off and get rid of it as quick as you can, particularly if that's your only debt. As I say, if you've got other debts and it's a competition as to which one you pay off, um, because particularly if you are thinking about taking out another loan at some point, Banks do look at the hex debt and look at the percentage that you're forced to repay every year, because that will affect the serviceability of a loan. So you do need to take that into consideration going forward. But certainly, my view uh, is you want to keep chipping away and get rid of it, even if you're even if you're below the threshold and you're not forced to. You don't want it to keep growing. Melanie, thank
1: you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1 800 316 316. You might have a question, a comment, you might have a scenario for our special guest, Alex Cook. Let's take another call, Alex. Graham is in Queensland. Hello, Graham. Welcome. Yeah, howdy, there. Graham, what are your yeah. thoughts? What's your question? Well, I'm not sure. If I think I'm on the right
0: sort of questions or What I'm. I'm doing is um I work out of Murrumbar but I actually come from Mackay and um I take my car out and back etc um but I always take my tools back and that and I'm wondering whether I'm being um like able to claim for the petrol money that way because I take my tools back.
1: Okay Alex thoughts uh, Graham who works in Bar lives in Mackay and uh Are there some tax benefits that he should be claiming around transport of tools?
2: Mm. Look, it's a good question. I probably can't answer it because it's actually more of the realm of an accountant. So financial planners, ah, we, tend to dabble more, we tend to dabble more in superannuation, investing, et cetera, insurance. Um, it's a good question and generally work-related expenses. So if the accountant were to deem it to be a work-related expense, then it may well be deductible. But it'd be very difficult for me to comment without knowing a bit more detail. And as I say, it's more of a question for an accountant. So I would, I would look it up on the internet, see if there's any information about it. But also if you have an accountant, reach out to them and give them a call because tax deductions are really the the realm of an accountant more than anybody else
1: interesting as a family uh, here alex uh, the thought that uh, you and your spouse might well be talking about things in the lead up to the end of financial year how important mm. is it to actually include your kids in conversations around tax time too especially perhaps if they're teenagers
2: Look, I think it's a great opportunity. So I see this as a discipleship thing. You know, uh, the Bible has this wonderful passage in Proverbs that says, and many listeners will know it, start children off in the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it, which I I think is a great passage to encourage us uh, with our kids, you know, getting it right when they're young. And uh, so when it comes to giving, which is really a core aspect of Christian living, you know, we're called to be Christlike. Jesus was the ultimate act of generosity on the cross. And so we want to teach our kids generosity. And and the question is, how can you do it? And so one of the things, of course, that happens at 30 June is we all get uh, emails and and letters in the mail from various Christian organizations, um, you know, doing their annual uh, fundraisers. And so what I say to parents here is use this as an opportunity to sit down with the kids and actually talk them through the different organizations that you support or are thinking of supporting. And get their involvement, get their opinion, Uh, you know, show them the brochure, show them the material so they can see that there's this world bigger than them, you know, because, you know, with young people, they tend to be obviously very, uh, you know, self-orientated. And so by showing them this, you're showing them the world, you're showing them what God is doing around the world, you're showing the importance of mission, the importance of helping the poor. And... uh, It's just a wonderful time to sit down with them. Now, obviously, they might not be—they're not going to be involved in the financials of it. You know, you're not going to necessarily tell them how much you're going to give to each and all that kind of decision. Although you may include them in that if you really want to. But for most people, that's going to be a parental decision based on your budget. But the real issue here is getting their involvement and showing your heart to them about what you care about, what's important to you, and and getting their input too, and and getting their ideas. Uh, And that, to to me, is a—it's just a wonderful discipleship opportunity um and to you know sit down with your kids and have a chat about focusing on these eternal matters because at the end of the day giving is is really about focusing on eternity and helping our kids to have that understanding
1: our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316 let's take some more calls kate is in queensland hi kate welcome along good morning guys what are your thoughts kate
0: I'm just wondering with superannuation and early access due to hardship circumstances, if there's only that one way of accessing it and then having to pay or forego around the 30% mark or whatever the current percentage is, if there's any other options in times of financial um, hardship circumstances just so people aren't losing as much um, of their actual super?
2: Alex? Yeah, so look, uh, unfortunately, the, and we saw this during COVID where the government basically opened up the floodgates and let people take money out during COVID, but normally it's fairly restrictive. So the terminology we use in the industry to access super is satisfying what we call a condition of release. Now, for most people, that's either things like reaching uh, preservation age, which for most people is around 60 plus uh, or retiring, of course, which once again is beyond that. Uh, Then there is disablement. So if someone's disabled, they can access it. And that has to be permanent. And then the one you're talking about is hardship. And generally, that's obviously limited. So it's usually an amount of about $10,000 that they limit it to. Uh, and it gets, has to go through an approval process. So it is pretty restrictive because ultimately the intent of super, of course, is around the long term. So it was never intended as that kind of vehicle. So unfortunately it is pretty uh, limited to what you've just, you know, yourself mentioned to the, those very limited early access rules. Um, So there may be other options, obviously, for you to consider around Centrelink and other aspects, but it's generally very difficult beyond that to get access to super.
1: Kate, anything further to add there? No,
0: I thought that might be the case. I was just just asking just in case. Thank you for your time, Alex and Neil.
1: Kate, thank you so much for your call. Uh, Before we move on from that, though, that issue, um, there are disadvantages too, aren't there? Uh, Even if you have to access some of your superannuation because of hardship, uh, you may be disadvantaging yourself long-term. How do you see that, Alex?
2: Absolutely, because when we think of super as that long-term vehicle, it's really, you benefit from compounding. You know, we talk about the, 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 the magic of compound interest, so obviously if you take money out in those early years, you're reducing your capital and therefore the income and investment return that it's generating so by taking that money out you can actually be wiping out years off your long-term uh return and a large amount of money off the table longer term and that's why i think you know that's why the government government came under a bit of criticism during covid for making it so easy to get access to um so, yeah, be, just be very cautious. Treat super as a long-term thing. I, we always t- teach people, and Neil, you and I have talked about this before, about having emergency funds so that when tough times come, you've got other things to dip into rather than thinking about your super as a way of um, dipping into things.
1: Let's hear from Andrew, who's in Moree in New South Wales. Hi, Andrew. Welcome along. Uh, good morning, Neil and Alex. Good to talk to you this morning. Good to talk to you. What are your thoughts Thanks. here? Um,
0: I was just wondering if Alex had any advice or thoughts on um, a church situation where I was just at a meeting the other night and you look at, you know, you might have uh, X amount of funds in a fixed uh, investment um, or just a interest, higher interest rate um, account. Um, When you're looking at that and seeing, obviously, the rate of inflation um, a lot higher than that, do you, just wondering about any other ways that a church as such, obviously when you're, when you're dealing with other people's money, um, you have to be very careful <laughs> and mindful. But yeah. um, I know if you have excess money, you could put it even into buildings and, and then get the rent missions and so forth like that. But I don't know if you have any sort of strategies for even lesser amounts
1: um, that, that churches could use. Because, Alex, you do a lot of work Look, with um, churches, don't you? So uh, let's get some insights here for a yeah.
2: Look, you've raised two really, really good points, right? The first one is the fact that it's donor money, and therefore you want to be cautious with it, right? Because everyone's, you know, they've sown into the, the ministry, they've sown into their local church, and obviously they want to see that go to to good works and, and so forth. And, and so you've got to obviously respect that as the, the leadership team. And so that's a big one, and you clearly point that out. But equally, there's this other big problem that we're all facing now, and that is that inflation's at 7% and you're getting 45 in the bank. So everything is negative in terms of its real rate of return. Um, so I always bring it back to what is the actual objective of the money and what is the time frame of the money? So is that money needed in the next 12 months? In which case, you really can't take any risk with it. You've got to keep it, you know, very conservative. If the risk, uh, if if the time frame's longer, then you can then start to take a little bit of risk. And then the longer the time frame, the more risk is the general principle that we would apply to an individual. But you can with a church. But generally with a church, the the main thing is often that money is used for, as you say, for missions or for buildings, in which case you generally don't want to take any capital risk. limiting your exposure to growth type assets at the moment. There are... um, funds and things like that that can give you like six seven percent at the moment uh with minimal risk and so they they do exist uh but often have liquidity issues attached to them you know you can't get ready access to the money in the way you can with a, a bank account and term deposit so you have to look around but as i say begin with the objective look at the time frame and, and then ask how much risk can the church really take here and that would generally for most churches be very minimal So I hope that gives a bit of structure around the thinking rather than specific ideas because that's tough at the moment because ultimately most things are underperforming inflation, even shares in real estate, uh, which are the the good longer term assets that you would put money into to beat inflation in the longer run.
1: Andrew in Moree, and Andrew, while we've got you here, just to enlarge here, because uh, it's a good thing for a church to have a financial position where they have some money that is spare and an investment. A lot of churches uh, living week to week, month to month, and uh, just keeping afloat uh, challenging times. There is something here, isn't there, that's important so far as the ordinary church goer. Uh, who gives a contribution at their local church, a tithe or offering or uh, some sort of financial contribution. This time of year, do you sort of reassess things? Alex, is this a good time to be thinking about who actually is uh, making decisions about uh, finances in church sometimes you leave it in the hands of the pastor sometimes as a eldership or some sort of a deacon's mm. board or something like that uh, hopefully people with some expertise on how to do this a good time to reassess the way you do all of that financial management
2: oh absolutely and that sh- that should be a, a regular part of the leadership process uh reassessing obviously who's making the decisions Um, But also, you know, having that proper accountability in place so that risks uh, and so accountability amongst the leadership team, but also to the congregation themselves. You know, I say that pastors are when it comes to money, a lot of pastors will try and hand it over to the treasurer. And I say to them, that's a mistake. The treasurer may be accountable for the numbers in the in the counting sense of the word. But in terms of the, the messaging and getting our, your, your message out to your members and about what the church is doing and why it's doing it, that really needs to come from the senior leader. To me, pastors are in the front line here and need to be the, uh, the ones carrying the vision and associating the money with the vision of the church and what those funds are for.
1: Uh, Thank you so much to Andrew in Moree. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Just a couple of minutes out to news. Are there some important deadlines or cut-off dates that we need to be aware of coming up this end of financial
2: year, Alex? There certainly are. So for those listeners who are thinking about putting in last minute contributions into the super, obviously the obvious deadline is 30th of June, if you need it to be recorded this financial year. Uh, however, what you should do is contact your super fund or jump on their website. And what you'll find is most of them will have their own deadlines for different types of payment, whether it's the cheque, et cetera, or direct deposits. Uh, and the thing is, most of them close this Friday the 23rd. Now, it may well be they'll still accept the contribution and recognise it even at the end of this week, but they just don't guarantee it. So the sooner you can get money in that you had intended to put in, uh, the better you'll be just to make sure it all happens comfortably and you've given yourself some some regal room to get that money counted before 30 June.
1: Just let me come around uh, Christian responsibility. It's tax time. Um, I've heard it said, you know, taxation is the cost of civilization. Uh, There's some ways though that as Christians, uh, there's a spirituality to the way we think about uh, government and taxation and uh, those contributions we make. How do do you see things for the Christian?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it puts a lot of our faith to test, in fact, our attitudes towards this kind of thing. Um, So to me, the question here is, how do we glorify God in all that we do and in particular how we manage our money? To me, that's the overriding principle, glorifying God with the funds that we have. And so what are the biblical principles associated with taxation? Well, one that many will have heard of is the, the scripture that says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. Which is the when Jesus was asked about should they pay the temple tax, right? So that's the first one. The the second one is I think around the idea of we have to do what's right in the eyes of God and what's in the right in the eyes of man. And so to me, really, the key issue here is how do we honor God with our finances and obey the laws of the land? So that to me is, is the key things you want to do: glorify God with your finances. Um, but and I think the issue here is, as you rightly said, you know, it's, it's part of our civil responsibility. Uh, you know, you've got to pay taxes because that pays for hospitals, pays for roads, uh, pays, for, pays for a whole range of things that we often take for granted. And sometimes we treat them as rights when, in fact, they they come at a price. And so we've got to remember that we have to contribute towards that. But to me, good stewardship does mean that you don't necessarily pay more than you have to. And so as a Christian, I should be diligent with my finances and, and I should consider ways to legally minimise my taxation. There's nothing wrong with minimising your tax so long as you're abiding by the laws of the nation. And that's a normal practice that accountants obviously encouraging people to do. Uh, but the main thing is you are uh, obeying the laws and uh, you know, not trying to find cute ways around it Um, that would dishonor God. Particularly, you have to always ask the question, if someone found out about this beyond just the tax office, right? So it's not just the case of the ATO finding out, it's it's, Would other people find out about it. Would it bring the church into disrepute? And I think that's a really important thing to consider when you're thinking through these issues.
1: And I guess it's what makes Christian people good citizens, because avoidance might be crossing that line of breaking the law, but uh, minimization is, in fact, good stewardship because uh, you are a steward of whatever finance God has given to you. A hey, 1-800-316-316, we're taking calls. Let's hear from Rose in Brisbane. Hello, Rose. Welcome along.
0: Oh, good morning, Neil and Alex. Uh, I'm wondering if I need to start putting in a tax return again. I've been on a pension for quite a long time. I'm healed and delivered of all my problems and uh, I'll be getting back on my feet soon. But um, I am an over and above tithe payer and I was gifted the family home last year as a transfer and uh, I do have some savings and therefore a bit of interest. So do I need to start putting in a tax return? Uh,
1: good, Good question. Alex, thoughts for Rose?
2: Yeah, so look, this is a question to talk to a tax agent about. So what I would encourage you to do is, uh, I don't know if you've used an accountant in the past or or a local tax agent, you know, like ITP or one of those providers, and and just basically go to them and say, look, this is my new situation now. So I've earned a certain amount of savings. I've earned a certain amount of interest. And they can talk you through the process of disclosing it uh, to the tax office. So it's great that you're asking these questions. Uh, And so, as I say, talk to a local tax agent will be the best person to help you through that and disclose what's appropriate and what's necessary to the tax office as required.
1: Anything further to add there, Rose? No, you've
0: answered my question. Thank you very much.
2: Thank
1: you for your call. 1-800-316-316. You might have a question, you might have a scenario. 1-800-316-316. Come back, Alex, to some of these responsibilities we might have, but even opportunities that we might have as Christian believers. uh, When we talk about, um, you know, taking advantage of tax deductions and such things, uh, sometimes that's, Uh, different for each individual. What are your thoughts here around a Christian approach to taking advantage of tax deductions?
2: Yeah well from a Christian point of view obviously the key issue is finding what deductions apply to you and making sure obviously that they're genuine and uh, basically there are lots of different categories here that people may want to look at. So for example Work-related expenses is often a big one, so it may well be that a number of your work-related expenses are legitimately deductible. This is why, by the way, and you know, just with the same with the last caller, you do should use a local tax agent. You don't necessarily need an accountant, but you do need someone who can advise you to take and take advantage of all the appropriate deductions that are legally available to you. So, as I say, work-related expenses is one. Self-education expenses. Uh, charitable donations. Now, that's a very careful one you've got to be careful with because some donations to certain organisations like Missions, for example, are generally not deductible and other organisations, particularly benevolent things like uh, that are helping the poor, generally are. So you just need to make sure that what you are claiming can in fact be claimed. Generally speaking, the organisation that you're donating to will actually say it on their form. You know, donations above $2 are deductible. So you usually know about it fairly readily. uh, But just... Make a list of all your expenses and say, right, which of these are legitimately um, uh, deductible and talk to your tax agent about that so they can arrange that for you. So that's one really obvious area. Uh, The other area is around capital gains and capital losses. You know, many people listening will have investments, whether it's in superannuation or outside. Uh, If you have losses and you're wanting to get out of that particular investment, it may be an opportunity to take that loss prior to 30 June uh, because losses get carried forward indefinitely and can be used and offset against future gains. Likewise, if there's an investment you're considering taking a profit on, you might not want to do it before 30 June. You might want to wait to 1 July. So you're deferring the tax liability out into the future. So it's not to say you're not paying the tax. It's just that you're deferring the liability. That's perfectly uh, normal. It's just a case of timing the transaction. So there's often investment issues associated with tax. And this is a time to consider that. Once again, as Neil's indicated, ideally with getting advice from a professional just to make sure you're doing the right thing here.
1: Let's take another call. Kevin is in Armidale in New South Wales. Hi, Kevin. Welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, How are you going? Very well, Kevin. What's your question or do you have a scenario for Alex? Okay. Um, We had a uh,
0: fundraising for a um, a Christian organisation just recently um, and we had uh, people donate um, things to... Um, help raise the money. We we had auctions and all that sort of stuff. Um, but somebody said that um, as a sole trader that I could possibly claim the donations that I put in um, against my tax. Uh, but I didn't actually... All, all I gave them was, was a gift voucher to the value of and um, the people auctioned. To, to actually win, win that particular
1: voucher. Um, is it possible to claim without any, any, any what's the word, paperwork? <laughs> uh, good question, Kevin. Uh, thoughts
2: here, Alex? Yeah, so look, it's, whilst it's in a question for an accountant, to me, I'd be very nervous about trying to claim something like that, whereby there's no paper record, because general rule of thumb is you need obviously a receipt for any, deduction, uh, any contributions you make, and secondly, it also relates to the organization itself that's receiving the money. So if it's just a bit of a sort of ad hoc get together raising funds for a, a local thing, it may it probably not a it might not necessarily be a legitimate uh, you know charitable institution with what they call a DGR status, so deductible gift recipient status, because those kind of structures are in place, are designed so that people can get tax deductions. So I would say if you haven't got paperwork then probably not Um, and also that depends on the organization that was one receiving the money Um, so i chat to once again a tax agent and say look this is who i've given money to do you think i can claim this but it's probably unlikely without any proper paper trail and whether the organization is in fact one that accepts tax-deductible donations.
1: Uh, Kevin, while we've got you here, um, thoughts here, and this might be, again, the tax agent that answers this sort of question, Alex, but if you have given a gift voucher as a prize, uh, isn't that something of a level of advertising and promotion that uh, you may be able to claim as a deduction in your business? Hmm.
2: It's it's a good question. Um, yeah, I I just Getting
1: Alex's thoughts on it.
2: Yep. It's it's a good question. Yeah. Look, I hadn't thought about it to be honest in the past, but yeah, it's it's a possibility. I'd have to think. <laughs> okay. i have to take that one off there and have a think about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: good. Okay. Thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, great question. One 316 If you have a question for Alex Cook, Alex, let's come back to uh, one of those bread and butter things. I guess everyone is concerned about around tax time, and that is superannuation. This is an area you are, uh, got significant expertise in, and uh, a focus for people here. Um, Are there real opportunities before tax time to do some special things with your superannuation? Uh, What are your thoughts here about extra contributions and such things?
2: Yeah, look, this is a a really big area and a great opportunity for many people. Um, Firstly, there are different types of contributions and they have different eligibility criteria. And so what I'll do is I'll give people the names of a couple of them. And then what I'd refer people to is The ATO website where you can then look at the criteria and the eligibility rules because that's really important here and of course Neil and I would both encourage anyone listening to seek financial advice before actioning anything that we actually talk about you should really talk to a professional Um, but there's some really obvious ones so potentially you can put money into super and claim a tax deduction okay this is a, a contribution referred to as a concessional contribution and there's an annual limit of 27 and that you can put in and claim a tax deduction. Now, there are uh, other elements that affect whether you can or not. So if you're listening to this and you're employed, maybe your employer's already putting in some money for you, then you have to take that into consideration. So for example, if your employer's put in 10,000, you might be able to put in only another 17 and a half to get you up to that $27,500 limit. But the big attraction here is you can claim it as a tax deduction. Um, so once again, you've got to know your limits, know what you've put in already, but it's an opportunity for many people that could take advantage of that. Uh, another very common one is called spouse contributions. And that's where you deposit money into your spouse's super fund. But the spouse that makes the contribution gets a $540 tax rebate from the ATO. Uh, now, the criteria for this is that the spouse who receives the money is earning less than 40 grand a year. Okay, so if you're earning more than that, this contr- this strategy won't work. Um, so that's a good one. And the last one I'd bring attention to that many listeners may have heard of before is what's called the government co-contribution. And to get that, you need to put $1,000 into your super fund um as what we as an after tax contribution. So it's money you've already earned and paid tax on. You put it in to super and then once you do your tax return, the ATO will match it, they'll data match it, and they'll see that you've put the money in and then they'll give you a five hundred dollar co contribution. So it's a fantastic fantastic rate of return, fifty percent on your thousand dollars. But there is a criteria and it works on thresholds. Now the upper limit of that threshold this year is around 57k so if you earn over that you can stop listening because you don't won't apply um, but if you're earning below that then you're probably eligible for either a part or full government co-contribution so that's just giving people a bit of a flavor of the different options that are available to them Uh, But, Neil, once again, I'd point people to the ATO website. Obviously, get financial advice is the obvious thing. uh, But going to the ATO website will have the eligibility criteria for a lot of these things that we're talking about. Because what people need to realise is that if you make a mistake, sometimes there are tax penalties for over-contributing or doing things that you otherwise were not eligible to do. So just keep that in mind um, before you go putting extra money into super. Of course, the main one, though, is it's locked in. Keep in mind, once you put money into super, it's locked in until you retire or reach preservation age, as we call it.
1: For a lot of people, our super is like set and forget. Uh, What's your thought here about how often you might actually get a review on this? I mean, you do it uh, every year. I mean, I'm sure that you're going to say do it uh, as often as you can. Uh, But if you, you know, it just uh, for a lot of people just goes on and on and on and, uh, you know, back to the super again. How often do you think, uh, you know, get together with your spouse, uh, talk about your superannuation, uh, maximize the opportunity that is there?
2: No, it's a great question. Look, I would say a minimum of once a year um, because it's one of these things, a lot of people put it into the sort of, you know, they think of it's in the back drawer and they they kind of forget they even have super. In fact, there's I think there's billions of dollars in lost super that the ATO has on its its books uh, and because people forget they've even got it. So to me, it's a case of taking personal responsibility and saying, right, I want to prepare for retirement, even if it's 30 years away. How do I do that? What's the right kind of fund? And just check on it every now and then. Put it, Make sure it's invested in the right kind of asset classes that's suitable for your age. And make sure you're taking advantage of the very legitimate opportunities that present themselves, such as the ones we've just talked about, like government co-contributions and spouse contributions. Um, a lot of people get put off by the complexity of super, but at, at its grassroots level it's really not that complicated it's basically just a vehicle to provide for your retirement and it's concessionally taxed and there are a number of strategies to boost it and build it over time Um, and just be yeah just take it just review it regularly. As in once a year would be the minimum, I'd suggest.
1: Okay, go once a year, Alex. Uh, other things that might be advantageous for listeners. Um, not everybody has the opportunity. If you're in the right job, uh, you might be able to package your salary, uh, doing something mm. with the, uh, you know, the person who's in charge of the pay at your work. Uh, how do you actually do that? Is there some advantage in seeking out some uh, some opportunities there end of financial year? <laughs>
2: Look, absolutely. And a lot of this will depend on your employer. Uh, The most obvious one that Australians generally have access to from their employer, although their employer is not obliged to provide it, is salary sacrifice, uh, particularly into superannuation. But if you're listening to this and maybe you work for a not-for-profit or you work for a government organisation, many of those get uh, a certain portion of their income tax-free. Uh, So, for example, it's usually around $16,000 for -for not-for-profit organisations. And what that means is you can package certain things. So, often you can package a car lease. Uh, Some will allow you to actually package mortgage repayments. So, you're you're paying for your mortgage out of pre-tax income rather than net income, which is fantastic. Um, So, the key thing here that I would encourage all listeners is to talk to your employer, talk to the the people in uh, Human Resources and ask them, what are the benefits and things that we are allowed to package under our employment arrangement? That's the question you want to have an answer to uh, and then see what's uh, legitimately available to you. Uh, it will depend on the type of employer you have, uh, but certainly uh, opportunities do exist for many Australians. <laughs>
1: and i imagine that i mean some people working for some government departments or there might be some businesses that have some special you know incentive deals uh, about how you can use your uh, your pay your salary more effectively i imagine you've got to check on uh, check in with, uh, with with whatever your uh, business is uh, to see if there are some special things on offer that your boss actually will do for you
2: Absolutely. As I say, a lot of employers are not legally obliged to provide many of these types of things. Uh, Many of them choose to do it because it's a very sensible retention strategy. You know, they want to look after their staff and so they make these things available. Um, As I say, they may have limitations due to what's called fringe benefits tax. So if they're a normal corporate employer, if they give you certain benefits, they'll have to pay fringe benefits tax on it. And that's obviously a deterrent both for you and for them. Uh, in, in providing those benefits that's why you know working for not-for-profits uh, and other and government related organizations can have some you know seriously good financial advantages to them often they're, they're perceived to be paying less but when you allow for the benefits sometimes they're actually paying very generously
1: let's take we'll squeeze in one more call David is in Ballina in New South Wales hi David welcome along
0: Oh, hi, Neil. Hi, Alex. Just a question about transitioning into retirement. I turned 63 years ago and um, I actually converted my super to um, uh, a, what do they call that? transition retirement um, payment. Oh, I also had you, a bit of a part-time job. And uh, since then, or two years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer and haven't been able to work but I actually have come into a bit of money, which I wanted to put back into my super because my transition to retirement's running out. Do I have to start another fund or would the fund I'm with, which is Christian Super, would they allow that to add to that um, transition to retirement fund or not?
2: Alex? Yeah, look, it's a great question, David. Um, And so firstly, With a pension that's already in place, you typically can't add to it, right? So in other words, you can't add new money into that pension account. But good news is there's absolutely nothing stopping you from opening up a new account and putting new money into super, so that's easily doable. And then what you can do is then potentially merge that existing pension you have with that new account and then form uh and merge them two into a brand new account effectively so that's very common so as i say you can't specifically deposit into one that's already going but you can uh open up a a new account and b you can then merge them and start a whole fresh new pension as well if you wanted to um, so the answer is yes there's easy solutions to your uh, to what you're saying
1: uh, david thanks so much for your call and uh, time is running out Uh, Lots of great detail and uh, tackling an awful lot of different scenarios. And There might be some listeners who are thinking, oh, I wish my spouse had heard that, or uh, I've got family members who should have heard this or that. Uh, Well, you'll be able to access this conversation a little later on this afternoon on a podcast, and you'll be able to uh, send it on to family members or re-listen again to catch some of the finer points of what Alex was talking about. Alex is the founder of Wealth With Purpose uh, ministry to equip Christians to honor God with their finances teaching f- sound financial skills uh, there's lots of free resources available through Alex's website uh, e-books the my toolkits there's free videos there's podcast content and there's some things that you'll be able to access and take advantage of. Uh, the website is wealthwithpurpose.com. You can also follow Alex on Facebook and on Twitter. There's an Ask Alex at wealthwithpurpose.com email as well. Alex Cook, we have run out of time today, but uh, thanks so much for taking this opportunity and sharing these insights with listeners. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, people who are thinking, uh, yes, it's got our mind ticking over about the things we need to do before end of financial year. And uh, great timing for our segment today, giving listeners 10 days uh, to get things worked out before the 30th of June. Alex, thank you so much for being with us once again today on 2020. Thanks, Neil. Always a pleasure.
0: Thanks for tuning into the Wealth with Purpose podcast. For more great biblical wisdom and free resources, please visit www.wealthwithpurpose.com.